Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Philip Munoz. I teach uh, um, in the political science department here at Notre Dame, and I direct our constitutional studies program. It's a pleasure to welcome you uh, to, di- to uh, today's event. Uh, a few thank yous and then a, a few announcements. Uh, thank you especially to the Jack Miller uh, Foundation. The Jack Miller Center um, helped provide the funding for this lecture, and they partnered with us here at Notre Dame. So thanks to our friends uh, at JMC for all the support. Uh, thank you to uh, Professor Barber. Uh, his class is here. Um, this, uh, this lecture and a few of our lectures here are to supplement uh, those classes we're offering in political science where we're teaching the Federalist Papers, uh, my class and Professor Barber's class uh, in particular. Um, now, it's no coincidence that we're doing this lecture um, right after our football game last weekend. Uh, you know, in the ancient world, when you defeated another people, you either killed or imprisoned all right, them. Uh, we're more civilized now. Uh, we just take one of their best professors for an afternoon. Right? I'm, I'm doing my best to be accommodating to our friends from UVA today. Um, uh, as always, we have a uh, student to introduce our, our speaker. So I'll introduce Nick Marr. Uh, Nick is a political science major, a senior. He works for the program. Uh, and I'm about to sign him up for the constitutional studies minor. So. There you, go. you should all sign up if you're not already signed up. Um, so thanks for all you all for coming. Uh, it's my pleasure to, today to introduce our speaker. Dr. James Caesar is professor of politics at the University of Virginia, where he's taught since 1976. He's written several books on American politics and political thought, including Presidential Selection, Reconstructing America, and Nature and History in American Political Development. Professor Caesar has held visiting professorships at many universities, including the University of Florence and Oxford, and he's a frequent contributor to the popular press. Today he will speak on one of my favorite founders, but I think we know candidly the second best version of Publius, James Madison. Please join me in welcoming Professor Caesar. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation, Philip. I'm happy um, Sot's class is here too. It looks like a full house. I hope it stays that way, at least for the first half hour or so. Um, My subject uh, today is uh, called the Founder and and Modern Founding. Now, Americans today regularly speak of our founding and our founders. Our founders appear everywhere. They're portrayed on hundreds of monuments, large and small. They're remembered in Broadway musicals like Hamilton. And they're commemorated in the names of countless towns, churches, and streets, none more iconic than Madison Avenue. If you look overseas to Europe, things are are not quite the same. True, many of the non-democratic nations had and honored their founders, like Lenin in the Soviet Union, Mussolini in fascist Italy, even Hitler in Nazi Germany. But these regimes are no more. As for the democracies, it's a striking fact that few of them talk about or think they ever had founders. People in Great Britain do not speak of a founding nor do citizens of the Netherlands. These nations have grown into their current condition without having a founding, or so they say. In America, 
Founding is a central theme of our history, and founding is also a seminal concept of our political science, at least the political science that's taught here at Notre Dame. For all the attention we pay to founding, it's a bit perplexing that we're awfully imprecise when it comes to assigning the label of founder. To whom should it apply? For most, I suppose, a founder refers to an important political personage back then who helped the nation get started. At an Independence Day celebration on July 4th between grilled hot dogs and enjoying fireworks, Thomas Jefferson will surely be remembered. But even though the event honors the Declaration, no one would take exception if George Washington, James Madison, or Alexander Hamilton were also mentioned. All of these men, and others too, are commonly seen as founders for having importantly contributed to launching our new government. The founding, if we seek provision, can, I think, refer to three moments in the establishment of the nation. First, to the revolution. Second, to the writing and ratification of the Constitution. And third, to the launching of the government and passage of the Bill of Rights in President Washington's first term. The founding period thus runs from the Battle of Lexington in 1775, when the first shot was heard around the world, through, uh, let's say, 1793. Those who merit the title of founders include our revolutionary leaders, Franklin, Adams, Jefferson, Washington, the principal figures who prepared and defended the Constitution, Madison, Washington, Hamilton, and the political leaders who shaped the new federal government in the first few years, Washington, Hamilton, and Madison again. If someone demanded to know, however, which one of these moments should be designated the founding, most historians, I suspect, would give that honor to the creation of the new government in 1787 and 1788. At the center of this event is James Madison, the man who subsequently was labeled the father of the Constitution. He was a main figure in the mid-1780s in pushing for a new government, one of the most important persons in defining the terms of the debate at the convention in Philadelphia, and one of the three authors of the Federalists, the memorable essays that you're now studying. And of course, it was Madison who played the central role in putting together the Bill of Rights and securing its passage through Congress in 1791. So all this is well-covered ground. Far less known, and almost indeed entirely ignored, is this fact. He, Madison is the person responsible for reintroducing into America, at that time, the concept and idea of founding in relationship to what was taking place in America. If the concept of founding was noted at the time, it was in old books that referred to some outstanding figure of antiquity, people like Moses, who led the Hebrews from Egypt, like Curgis, who founded ancient Sparta, Romulus, who established ancient Rome, and so on. Founding had no connection or relation to what was being done in American modern times. So before there could be a founding, there had to be an idea of founding. The idea had to become part of America's way of thinking. James Madison supplied the intellectual discovery. For this, he deserves the title of being the founder of the modern idea of founding. Uh, today, as I said, we take the idea of founding for granted, 
And we think it was perfectly natural to have used that word in, in the 1780s. We speak of the founding and the founders for the simple reason that we believe, and believe that everyone at that time believed, that we had a founding and founders. Few ever paused to imagine that the idea of founding needed to be established, but it did. Credit for reviving the idea of founding belongs to the authors of the Federalist Papers and above all to James Madison. It was Madison in the 38th Federalist Papers who explicitly took up the theme of the founder and began comparing America's constitution writers to the great lawgivers or found founders of antiquity. Madison had a purpose in doing this. It was to have Americans at that time begin to view the events unfolding before them through the lens of the idea of founding, a concept that had association with extraordinary actions, great men, and bold remakings. And Madison not only introduced the idea of founding back into political science, but he also suggested with amazing audacity how our founding here might rival in greatness and even replace the foundings of, ancient, of the ancient world. In the future, instead of thinking of Lycurgus or Solon or the like as founders, people everywhere would begin to turn instead to the Americans, as in fact has occurred. Without this extraordinary step, those whom we call our founders today might not be known as founders at all. I'd like to turn for a few minutes now to the classical Greek idea of founding and examine how that idea was adopted and modified by three modern thinkers, Machiavelli, Descartes, and Rousseau. Founding was the fundamental theme of political science in classical times. If you know how to start something and to set it up, if you know how to build it, you know perhaps the most important thing. In the classical understanding, the most notable political systems did not come into a being as a result of accident or chance. They didn't just happen on their own. The political order was something that was consciously made. It was fashioned by an individual who acted to bring it into existence, someone who may have sought to found a good government, or at any rate, the best government possible under the circumstances. The individual who performed this task we know as the founder or the lawgiver. Classical writings are filled with accounts of those who sought to establish or reestablish a political order. Men like Theseus and Solon in Athens, Minos in Crete, Romulus in Rome, and perhaps the greatest of them all, Lycurgus of Sparta. Almost everyone, I suppose, has heard of Sparta. The Roman historian Plutarch tells us the city of Sparta was considered the chief city of all of Greece for the space of 500 years in strict observance of Lycurgus's laws. Now, if by chance Lycurgus was not included in your high school education, you will at least know something about the Spartans. They live on today as the mascot for all those splendid athletes from Michigan State University. Nor should we forget the Hollywood movie 300, where the Spartans' finest, their mighty muscles bulging, held off the whole of the Persian army under King Xerxes for over a week at the Battle of Thermopylae. Let's think for a moment about the act of founding. Two things are involved. First, there can be a body of knowledge of what promotes good government and how to set it up. 
This knowledge is the core of what we call political science. Lycurgus studied political science because prior to becoming Sparta's founder, he went on a voyage to the different island nations of the Aegean Sea, taking notes on the different forms of government in these states and how well or poorly they fared. In Crete, he spent some time with a philosopher-poet by the name of Thales, who had studied the origins of the Cretan system and who had begun to develop a, a full science of politics. The person who possesses this theoretical knowledge, like Thales, or better still, like Aristotle, can be considered a kind of proto-founder or invisible founder. He doesn't perform the task of founding itself, but through his teachings and writings, he stands behind the actual founder, supplying counsel and advice. Now, the second part is the action of executing the founding. Here, the actual founder carries out the plan. Doing so may involve getting the people of a city to change their ways dramatically, adopting new habits and new modes of thinking, inspired perhaps by some new form of education. Perhaps the founder had the good fortune, like Lycurgus, of studying political science in advance. Otherwise, the founder performed the task of founding without formal instruction proceeding by his own wits and doing the best that he could. Keep this in mind, however, knowledge of political science is important, but it serves as best as only a partial guide for action. Politics is not like physics, where everything takes place in a controlled environment. The particular circumstances in each place, the facts on the ground, always must be considered. No science can know all these facts in advance. The founder will always have to deal with things on the spot and calculate the risks and probab prob uh, probabilities that are involved. Madison discusses all of this in The Federalists, mentioning 14 founders. Still, some, he tells us, ended by settling for much less than they might have wished for. They couldn't or they wouldn't make all the changes they wanted. Perhaps given the circumstances they faced, they had little choice but to compromise. Or perhaps they were too fearful to risk trying to entirely reform a people. The Athenian founder Solon is an example. He confessed, Madison tells us, that he had not given his countrymen the government best suited to their happiness, but the one most tolerable to their prejudices. Some founders, however, Madison says, were more true to their object. They sought what they thought was the very best, and they exposed themselves and their project to enormous risk. Lycurgus was one of these. He founded Sparta not just by ordinary persuasion, but by using, in Madison's words, violence and the authority of superstition. Lycurgus, in other words, practiced trickery and coercion to achieve his objectives as founder. Now, here's an interesting point. Many of the techniques and methods Lycurgus employed to found his system were not ones that he wanted to see employed once that system was actually established and got going. The use of force and tricks he used were necessary to get things settled, but once created, they would cease to exist. Founding, we see, is a different kind of political activity than settled or ordinary politics. It's an extraordinary activity. What goes on in a founding may not be allowed to go on once the founder has established his system. 
The techniques necessary to set up the system are different from the principles that keeps the system going. Founding is a distinct activity. Now skip ahead to Niccolo Machiavelli, who adopted the classical ideas of founding, but who reformulated them a bit. For one thing, he brought the, the founder himself into the equation, asking how the founder satisfies his own interests in founding. The founder has to get something out of this act, for why else would he do it? No longer did Machiavelli assume, as classical thinkers may have, that a founder acts naturally for the good of his compatriots without regard for his own interest or benefit. The founder's goals of achieving glory for Machiavelli must be satisfied and squared, if possible, with promoting the public good. For Machiavelli, there are the same two basic elements of founding that he considered. First, there's political science, or theoretical knowledge of how to found. How the founder should proceed is explored by the philosopher, or the political scientist, the one who I called the proto-founder. Machiavelli calls this knowledge the rules for the government of princes. He offers his own political science as the best source of instruction, superior to the political science of the classics. It was superior because it was more realistic. Classical theorists, he said, spend too much of their time discussing imaginary political forms that have never been seen or known to exist in, in truth. They didn't tell it like it was, skipping over all the blood and deceit. And Machiavelli adds, he who lets go of what is done for what should be done learns his ruin. Machiavelli's science of politics, or so he claimed, was superior to the political science of the ancients. He was the truer or better pro uh, proto-founder or invisible founder. And second, there's the actual founder who engages in the activity of being a founder. This founder proceeds by the use, Machiavelli said, of his own arms and ability. Among the greatest exemplar Machiavelli mentions are Moses, Cyrus, Romulus, and Theseus, figures who, he says, took the lead in the introduction of a new order of things. Machiavelli specifies some of the properties of the founder. One feature is that the founder must almost always act by himself. Founding is an individual activity, not the work of a group. You would never rely on a faculty committee to found anything. On this point, Machiavelli excuses the actions of Romulus, the founder of Rome, who got rid of, that is murdered, his brother Remus. This was an excusable fratricide, Machiavelli said. Things are never entirely reformed unless it is done by one individual. The founder should always act alone, carrying everything into effect. So founding a new mode and order is an act of extraordinary difficulty. You have to have an extraordinary amount of authority. But where does the founder acquire this kind of authority, especially if he holds no previous political office? Initial authority can come, Machiavelli tells us, from taking advantage of an opportunity, by which he means a situation in which the people are faced with dire circumstances. People in dire circumstances, like being slaves in Egypt, will consider listening and obeying because they have practically little to lose. An opportunity, in our terms, is a crisis. And a crisis, as Rabbi Emanuel has told us, is a terrible thing to waste. So our founders, too, 
emphasized in the Federalist Papers the dire emergency that the nation faced in 1787. Under these circumstances, people are inclined to follow the founder. But this spontaneous inclination only lasts so long. When things get tough, Machiavelli says, as they invariably do, people fall away and they cease to willingly obey. Take a look at Moses, who led his people from Egypt, only to find that in the desert wilderness, without food or water, these same people grew discontented and sought to get rid of Moses. They grumbled and they revolted. A founder at some point, therefore, needs to be able to compel obedience. Things must be ordered in such a mode, Machiavelli says, that when the people no longer believe, one can make them believe by force. An unarmed founder, someone who operates without force, will be unable to succeed. Force is needed. Force refers to the use of physical arms or to psychological manipulation, most often using religion to instill fear. Now here's a final point about Machiavelli that's maybe a little bit difficult to grasp. Uh, maybe I shouldn't mention it, but before this esteemed group, I, I will. Founding for Machiavelli takes place on, on many different levels. On one rung of the ladder, perhaps the lowest rung, there's changing the frame of government inside a particular state. Take our own founding in 1787, when what we call the founders got rid of the Articles of Confederation, our first republic, and changed to the Constitution, our second republic. A second step up the ladder of founding is the creation of an altogether new kind of political form. Look at Alexander the Great, who began as a ruler of a middling nation, Macedonia, in ancient times. But from this modest starting point, he proceeded to build a huge empire that covered the greater part of the known world. He built a new political form, different from what previously existed. So he, too, was a founder of a higher order. Now the third step. And here you need to exercise your imagination a little bit. You can think of a change beyond the political in the ordinary sense of the term. This is a change of the character of an entire civilization or culture. A civilization can change from being pagan, when all worship local gods, to becoming Christian, when all possessed belief in the Trinity. And with Machiavelli, there was a proposed change from a Christian era to the Enlightenment era, when people would turn from finding authority in enacting God to authority in their own sovereign reason. In these changes of civilizations, the transformation goes beyond what any single person can hope to accomplish in his own life. Now, if a person is the source of this change, it would have to be in the capacity of being a philosopher or proto or invisible founder. The proto founder prepares the way through his teachings and writings for many others in the distant future to do the work of actually transforming that civilization. The invisible founder, you could say, becomes in effect the real founder. He operates across generations or centuries, such as St. Paul did in introducing Christianity. Some interpreters of Machiavelli sought to, uh, to, to look at his writings in this way. His writings set in motion and helped to found an entirely new cult cultural disposition in the West. He sought to change the whole face of the political universe from religious to non-religious. Now a, a word about the Enlightenment philosopher René Descartes. 
He offered an account of the, found, of the founder as well that followed Machiavelli, but absent all of the shocking violence that seemed to delight Machiavelli. Early in his discourse on methods, Descartes describes his picture of the city planner, who's a kind of stand-in for the founder. The planner remakes the city or the political order. Descartes says that the planner should act by himself, as Machiavelli tells us. He tells us, Descartes says, there's not so much perfection in works created by the hands of various masters as there is in those which one person has worked on alone. And then Descartes goes on. Buildings which a single architect has undertaken and completed are usually more beautiful and better ordered than those which several people have tried to refurbish by making use of old walls and old buildings built for other purposes. Descartes' founder is disdainful in every way of the old, of old buildings and of old streets, which grew up haphazardly and without a plan. The old should be dismissed in favor of what is designed by a new science, which Descartes likens to the science of the engineer. Descartes' proposal is to raise, that is to tear down, everything in front of him, tear down all the ancient buildings, the crooked walkways, and design everything anew. The founder rebuilds his city on a flat and level ground. The model is the technocrat's dream of founding by a complete rational plan, unconstrained by the wishes of the people. And finally, just a word about Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who also entered in the discussion of founding. The founder for him is really the most extraordinary of all individuals. Acting on his own, the founder sees further than others and establishes a plan for an entire new, entirely new system. Founders are supreme. Those we call statesmen are figures of a lower rank than founders. They only maintain what the founder has created. For individuals, Rousseau tells us, few individuals, Rousseau tells us, possesses the genius to perform the founding role. The founder is one capable of figuring out how, in Rousseau's words, to change human nature, to transform each individual who on his own is a complete and solitary whole into part of a greater whole from which each receives his life and his being. So the capacity to exercise such a plan must be fitted to the needs of each place, which vary greatly. A poetic gift, as well as a science, is needed. The task demands unusual authority, authority that exceeds what reasoned argument could ever persuade any people to do. The founder, Rousseau tells us, must claim divine sanction if he is to succeed. Well, so much for these theorists of founders. Let's look for a minute at the thought of people in Great Britain in the period just before the American Revolution, which, as you well know, was critical because we borrowed so much of our political thinking at the time from the British. But here we encounter something surprising. The founder is almost completely absent from the major schools of thought in Great Britain at the time. British political thought in the 18th centuries eliminates the founder. The idea of founding vanishes. The Britishes may have turned away from the idea of the founders for the reason that they wanted to discourage would-be Machiavellian leaders from coming along and trying to upset the political world through fomenting revolutions. Or perhaps the British thought that the concept of founding was false or an in inapplicable to modern times. Whatever the case, the British offered two different schools of thought. 
that told us different versions of political science, both of which get rid of the founder. First, there's contract theory, which derived from John Locke. It's argued here that governments are formed by individuals who voluntarily come together on the basis of their reasonable calculations of how best to secure their primary rights, how to secure their life and preservation of their property. The political science of contract theory explains how people living in a state of nature, which is a situation without government, come to understand that they need to exit from this condition where their rights are precarious and transition into a society with a real civil government. Contract theory offers a model for establishing a sound political order. The task of setting up a civil society has no need of a founder who generates extraordinary authority. It's not needed. The origination of society is or should be a reasonable or semi-automatic process where the people see the logic of coming together to create a social compact. Contract theory stands in opposition to the model of founding. It eliminates reliance on the chance of some founder coming along. The emergence of a civil society rests instead on the logics of men's reason and interest. Waiting for a great heroic founder like Moses to arrive, which no one can guarantee, is no longer needed. A social contract spontaneously generated by the wishes of all reasonable people replaces the need for the founder. Take a look at the contract theorists. Where does the figure of the founder conspicuously appear? Now, the other major thought, uh, school of thought in Britain is known today as organic theory. Persons in this school, uh, like Blackstone and Burke, taught that the English Constitution formed gradually over time. It was a product of accident and of piecemeal adjustment. It was never consciously made, and there was never a single moment when it started. The British Constitution had no founding and had no founders. It originated somewhere back when, perhaps in the forests of Germany among the old German tribes like the Saxons, who conquered England. England's magnificent constitution grew on its own, like a splendid oak tree, adding now this limb and now that branch, all without an overall plan. The organic theory does allow for human intelligence to play some role along the way, but only in the modest form of reforming, not engaging in revolutions or establishing new governments. There is no such thing as a wholesale transformation or starting over again. There is no founder. Organic theory further argued that a science of politics is unequal to the task of founding. The job is too complex. Planning a new society goes beyond what any single human being, regardless of his intelligence, can accomplish. To think otherwise is to be guilty of unbelievable conceit or hubris. In addition, extraordinary authority as we've seen, is necessary to carry out the task of founding. That's dangerous. It is a threat to liberty. Founding requires bringing full authority together and centralizing it, at least for the moment, under one person. This is a kind of authority without limit or tyranny. And founding is often accomplished by force or by fraud. This behavior cannot be forgotten. It will only serve to make people later accept despotism is more likely. Proponents of this organic theory presented their account of the English constitutional development as the actual history of Britain. Their histories perhaps were accurate, 
but more likely they were used in part to promote a narrative that, prefavor, that preferred their preferred view of political science. It was, if you will, fake history. Organic theory dampens enthusiasm for thinking in terms of clean slates, new beginnings. It seeks to remove these ideas from public political theory, foundings excluded. Edmund Burke explained that the British Constitution had not been formed, I quote him, upon a regular plan or with any unity of design, but rather it grew in a great length of time and by a great variety of accidents. It's almost as if Burke, in opposition to Descartes, was insisting that a good city plan is a non-plan. A good constitution will respect the old and look kindly at old buildings and crooked and narrow streets. It will recoil at eliminating old structures in order to make, well, make way for monstrous new designs of city planning and the megalomania of architects. As for political founding, Burke said this, the very idea of the fabrication of a new government is enough to fill us with disgust and with horror. Now American political thought at the time of the founding, which broke definitively with both of these schools of British thought. The British excluded founding. Our founders returned this theme to the center of political science. For all the similarities that exist between English and American thought, for all the ways in which we have borrowed and built on British ideas, a decisive difference divides the two countries. Americans accept and approve of the idea of founding, and the British do not. The Federalists challenged the claim of organic theory that the establishment of good political constitutions is always the result of unplanned growth, and that what comes about by accident is always superior to what is consciously made. That was the organic theory. The Federalist says it's just the opposite. The first paragraph of the Federalist tells us that the efforts to ratify the Constitution present America and the modern world with a fundamental choice. It was for us, Americans, to determine, and here I'll quote uh, James Madison, whether societies of men are capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. Establishing the good government, a good government the Federalists holds, is best achieved by conscious and intentional making. Relying on what develops spontaneously or what grows on its own will often lead to failure. That's, I think, the teaching of much of the Federalists. The Federalists took pride in the accomplishment that relied on conscious choice. Ratification of the Constitution was a pivot point that could change the character of the whole political world. Going back to the revolutions, Americans, Madison said, had reared the fabrics of governments which have no model on the face of the globe. The Federalists' embrace of founding brings greatness of the highest order back into political life. It restores rank and hierarchy to the actions of leaders. There are now great men on the scene <coughs> performing extraordinary deeds at critical moments. The Federalist sketches the admiral qualities of the few responsible for producing the Constitution. These were men who had knowledge of political science, who possessed sound judgments in determining in what measure theoretical knowledge could be applied to the circumstances at hand, and who had both the persistence and the boldness to pursue the nation's interests. 
These ideas culminate in James Madison's explicit reintroduction of the theme of the founders, in which he compares the actions of our founders to the stories founders of antiquity. What is taking place in America it is, a, is a founding of great consequence on the same plan, plane as what took place in antiquity. If the Constitution is ratified, Madison tells us, America's founders will become not just worthy rivals of these ancients, but perhaps their superiors. Americans, Madison asserts, have made, and I'll cite them here, improvements on the ancient mode of preparing and establishing regular plans of government. Now, I don't have time to speak of the ways in which Madison uh, spells out all these improvements, but I'd like to take five minutes at the end of this talk to mention what is perhaps the most important of them and which links the founders to the theme of founding. It's the idea of a written constitution. Recall this fact. The device of a written constitution, which we take for granted, everyone comes to power, writes a uh, written constitution, but no one had written constitutions before the 18th century. The idea of a written constitution, superior to statutory law and changeable only by a process separate from ordinary lawmaking, was an innovation in politics that commenced in the states after the revolution. The new idea was to write down on paper or parchment the plan or framework of government. This procedure enabled people to decide if they wanted to support the plan of government or not. They could see and read the plan. Yet more important was determining what kind of document a written constitution was anyhow, and how should the public understand it. Now here's where Madison stepped in again and made what may be regarded as his most extraordinary contribution to the founding. All agreed that the Constitution should stand at the apex of positive law and have the legal status of being, as the Constitution says, the supreme law of the land. So far, so good. But acting on his own, Madison in Federalist 49 added something entirely new. The Constitution, he argued, should function as something more than ordinary law. It should be seen as an enduring document and a national symbol that would connect future generations of Americans back to the founding period. The Constitution will only be able to perform this function, however, if it is placed on a higher plane than ordinary law and if it's treated, and here Madison introduces two key words, if it's treated with reverence and with veneration. Enjoying the support that would come with age, the Constitution, he said, would have the prejudices of the community on his side. Future Americans would understand that the national written constitution in a certain way is a document that could not and should not be easily changed. Now our constitution today is widely thought of as a document that, so to speak, asks to be revered. But surprisingly, a written constitution in 1787 was not thought of in this way. Reverence and a written constitution were two different things. They did not automatically fit together and they did not automatically go hand in hand. There was no connection between them. Nor is there any obvious reason when you think about it why these two things, that is a written constitution and reverence, should be con connected. Considered, for example, people's disposition today toward their state constitutions. In many states, the sentiment of reverence for the written state constitution simply doesn't exist. Many states' constitutions are periodically rewritten 
and some require even that this be done. State constitutions are often easily changed and amended and amended. It would take a person of peculiar temperament, if not questionable sanity, to venerate the Constitution of California. <laughs> Madison's plan to join reverence to a written constitution developed, I think, in response to a proposal by Thomas Jefferson in his book, Notes on the State of Virginia, in which Jefferson called for making it relatively easy to, easy to revise written constitutions. Jefferson looked at written constitutions more as ordinary law. Higher or supreme in legal status, yes, but only for a certain amount of time, only as, uh, in the time that was allowed. Otherwise, Jefferson argued, it's important that the as circumstances change, that each succeeding ge generation would write its own constitution. Each succeeding generation knows better how to build a good constitution than the one that came before it. We are progressing. Deference to the past and to founders, which reverence suggests, makes us subservient to ancient prejudices. Jefferson mocked this idea in later years. H have a listen to this. Some men, he said, look at constitutions with sanctimonious reverence and then deem them like the Ark of the Covenant, too sacred to be touched. They ascribe to the men of preceding age a wisdom more than human and suppose what they did to be beyond amendment. Not so. Jefferson said, laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. Jefferson's understanding of the character of a written constitution, I believe, was probably the predominant view in 1787. Madison argued that given the extraordinary difficulties of agreeing on a written constitution, encouraging regular revision of it was far too risky an idea. Better to lock in the gains made in 1787, shield them from the vicissitudes of future politics, and protect them from the influence of persons in the future likely to be of lesser intelligence and quality than the founders themselves. Say, Nancy Pelosi versus James Madison, something like that. Even more important, a disposition for constitutional reverence affects how people conceive of the entire political world in which they live. It affects how they think. Everything new is not always better. Constitutional veneration teaches people to look to and to value the past. It reminds us of what our constitutional fathers accomplished. It connects us to the founders who produced the Constitution. Without this disposition, ladies and gentlemen, it's hard to imagine that we would have founders today at all. Thank you. Hello, uh, Andrew Slattery. I'm a senior here at Notre Dame, uh, program of liberal studies and constitutional studies minor. Um, just a bit of a secondary point, I guess, um, in regards to the talk at writ large. Um, you mentioned Rousseau, um, and then you went on to mention the social contract theorists and said that social contract theorists don't really um, recognize the need for founders, yet Rousseau and his idea of the legislator comes from his book called The Social Contract. 
So I'm just curious, how's, how do you connect yeah. those two ideas? I, I, uh, I refer that, I may, may have been unclear, I refer that idea to, to John Locke. Uh, Rousseau does have ideas of, of founders, so he, he continues the tradition. But in Locke, you don't find the, the founder explicitly brought forward, as if uh, you don't need it. So that was the status, I think, in which the Founders acted in 1787. The idea of the founder uh, as someone who was going to fashion something new had um, all but vanished. Another undergraduate question? Uh, We're going up the, the ladder. <laughs> There's one right there. Hi there. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm a PhD student here. Uh, I've appreciated your emphasis of the political nature of the Constitution over against its just legal nature. Um, but I'm curious what you think about, how, to what extent do you think Lincoln repudiates that understanding of the Constitution in as much as he seems to revere indirect the Americans' reverence towards the Declaration as opposed to the Constitution. Do you think he is a new founding of America over against Madison? Is he beating Madison at his own game, or is he doing something else? Well, you got two questions there, um, but but on, on reverence uh, for for uh, uh, Lincoln, yeah, he he's, he's considered the uh, Constitution to be the apple of gold, and it turns this comes from Proverbs, uh, Proverbs, the apple of gold inside the framework or uh, or picture of silver. So they were both part of the original founding. And in his Lyceum Address, he refers to reverence for the Constitution and laws. So I, I, uh, I think it was reverence for both, you could say. But obviously, as the, uh, uh, in the issues of the Civil War, the um, Declaration was more pertinent to the times. Whether Lincoln was a refounder or uh, uh, um, someone who continues the Constitution under different circumstances, one of the great questions of, I suppose, of American um, political development. Uh, I think a good case can be made that in a way he moves towards something like refounding. Like the Constitution becomes different after him, but still retains its uh, central features. The form of government remains, at the national level, remains largely the same. So as we look at this issue, you've you got to you know, use a little imagination and everything. These are like um, ideal types that are explained. I'd say Lincoln is the closest in our history to someone who com, uh, refounds. And this is recognized in how we, we look at, at, at Lincoln today. You know, is he just an ordinary president, or is he somehow the extraordinary president who, in a task, was forced uh, to change things in a significant way? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I know. Did you just change from being an undergraduate to a graduate? Uh, I suppose, maybe one day. Um, yeah, so you mentioned, I believe it was uh, Federalist 49 and uh, reverence, and, um, and then the Lyceum Address was brought up, where there's the need for the reverence for the laws of the Constitution. Uh, we're talking about a lot about that there's a need for these sorts of things, but what ideas and the means uh, were brought up to kind of get that to actually be present in the United States, um, and have those been carried out properly? Do we still see reverence for the Constitution today? Yeah. Well, almost all of American history from the 1830s to the, the Civil War, the, the, let's call it the um, political history of the Whig historians and the Whig spokesmen, people like Webster, people like Rufus Choate, go back and read their writings. And what they turned to at this point was trying to uh, uh, 
teach the idea of reverence towards the con Constitution and the founding. Um, that was the, the kind of history that they wrote. So it became, I think, the way of looking at, at, at the United States. I, I can't say that they picked up from Federalist 49, but I, I won't say that they didn't. And those who find this in Lincoln in his early speeches as well, it looks a little bit like Madison on steroids, the, the Lyceum Address, if you had a chance to look at it. It's the same, many of the same arguments, um, even more strongly um, phrased as, as uh, Lincoln was wont to do. M Madison's writing is a little bit like, uh, hard to understand. I, I admit, I feel sorry for students who are given this task of reading Federalist 10 with all those triple negatives. It drives you crazy, but he never said things quite so directly, but um, uh, I think that would be true. But of course, what, what later began to happen in the United States is that the progressives argued against the Constitution and argued especially against worship of the Constitution. I think, in, in fact, they, they exaggerated the idea that the Constitution was worshiping to make it look so ridiculous that no one would want to do it. Um, so they, they raised the question in just the... Uh, the way that I did, saying that uh, this had become an obsession of Americans. You couldn't change anything because people were so connected to ancient ideas. But we had to change everything, said the progressives. The Constitution might have been fine for its time, maybe, maybe not. But it was certainly not going to do the work of the 20th century. That, that was their argument. So in all sorts of different ways, polemically, they attacked the, the founders and the Constitution and whatnot. Uh, they uh, attacked, attacked, uh, attacked the founding. Um, but the battle didn't end there. You can look at the monuments in Washington. What about the archives building? Um, maybe some of you have gone to Washington, seen the archives building. It's built a little bit like a temple. Or you used to uh, access it. I know it's changed a little bit now. So someone gave a lot of money, and everyone comes in from the top and walks around. But it used to, you walk up these series of steps. It's like the Ark of a Covenant. Maybe it's a little overdone. Hoover calls it the Temple to Liberty. But, but you come up and you see the Declaration, and you see the, uh, the Constitution. It's in a way meant to, to um, inspire a kind of reverence. And today, what, what about the situation of reverence for the Constitution? Hard to say. There are a lot of people who now cite the Constitution as if they revere it, who probably don't. But if we look at the Democrats today, for example, taking their they weren't so hot on the mechanics of the Constitution at the uh, end of Obama's presidency. Um, many people were thinking that it was time really to downgrade Congress even more and give all power to the president. But no sooner did um, Donald Trump become elected president when suddenly we see the Democrats speaking of the Constitution in hushed tones, as if you couldn't possibly do without this great uh, document. I think um, it's fair to say that uh, pe people sometimes use this notion of reverence uh, for, for the particular deeds of the, uh, time, uh, deeds of the time and what they need at the time. And probably there's nothing wrong with that, fortunately, because usually the, as time change, the parties will change, but there'll always be a party on the side of the Constitution. So we would like to have some people who revere the Constitution to make that the default option. I'd like, uh, in second place, to have some people pretend like they revere the Constitution. Uh, I'll take that as long as there are people on both sides, and that will tend to perpetuate it. I'm going to add here, and then we'll go to the other side. Hi, thank you. Um, my question really deals with where in your narrative you would place the experience of the Articles of the Confederation. Uh, 
which were thrown off so quickly? And how does, how does uh, either a change to thought uh, throw off that experience, which they felt was not the creation of a sustainable government? Yeah, I mean, there are no monuments. There is no reverence for John Dickinson. Just to let you know, I think he wrote the Articles of Confederation, but I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, where is he today? Um, yeah, uh, well, and, and in a way, the founders uh, uh, t- take the view of, uh, of arguing in the Federalist Papers. I think they believed it and thought it was the case as well, but they argued that the nation was in a terrible crisis. It couldn't go on in, in the current form. And so you could say they had uh, whatever the truth of the matter. There was also a percentage for them for emphasizing the idea of crisis. And the Anti-Federalists, you look at some of their writings, they say it's not so bad. A couple things went wrong, but we can change it with an amendment here or there. This is ridiculous to say that this government is completely incompetent. So, so the argument went at the time. I, uh, I think it's probably the case that the articles um, which were adopted um, you know, in the haste of time, you could say, I know it took a long time, but they, they got the form down quickly. They needed something immediately. They came up with the articles. It never perhaps had the, the same backing as uh, occurred with the Constitution. So it was easier to overthrow. It never had a national ratification by the people, uh, which the Constitution had. So uh, if anything, uh, I'd say uh, the articles, which probably produced the bad situation in the country, also um, lacked the residual of authority inside the, inside the nation. And so it could be easily overthrown, or at least overthrown by, by the founders. And uh, it's amazing how we never speak of the Articles, we meaning in general, uh, as our first republic, it is, and the Constitution is the second republic, it is. We never think of it, we go immediately to the Constitution as the starting point. It, it's, it's kind of forgotten. I feel sorry for it in, in, in many ways. And it was an effort to try and realize the, the ends of government as set forth by the Declaration. I don't think anyone disputed that. It was an effort, effort to do so. It just was ineffective. We have lots of hands over uh, on this. Despite the Dodgers jersey. We'll go, yeah. uh, go Dodgers. But my name is Andrick. I'm a law student here. And um, it seems obvious that the Constitution wasn't founded within a vacuum and that it was found, it was based on a fundamental premise. And to me, it seems further obvious that the Constitution seems nothing more than a vehicle to get us to whatever that end is. So to, how would you respond to the assertion that the Constitution is nothing more, or the, that, I'm sorry, reverence is misplaced? It shouldn't be within the Constitution, but within the foundational pr- uh, principle upon which the Constitution is based. Well, don't the two go together? Uh, I mean, that, that's the way it's kind of argued, is that, uh, of course, uh, a constitution is a means to an end. Um, you just don't slap something down on paper. You have the ends that you're trying to accomplish, and then you have the means which are used, um, which is the, the written constitution. That, that's the vehicle. And um, so, so it seems to me that the, the, the two go together. Everyone realized, uh, who would think about it, I won't say everyone, but everyone realized, think about it, that a, a, a written body uh, of law is an imperfect human achievement. It can't possibly realize perfectly all, all, all the ends in a perfect way. 
law can't do it. Uh, you're, you're, you're in law school, you'll, they'll probably teach you that law is an imperfect instrument. So, so with, the, with, the, with, the, with the Constitution, it's imperfect. And there were many people, uh, let's say in France, uh, uh, Joseph de Mestre and others, who looked at this idea of, of writing constitutions to frame governments, to, to, to use this vehicle, which we, we all accept. You know, almost every country, exception of Britain and maybe Israel, but almost every country that comes into being writes a constitution. Of course, they don't um, respect it, but they, but they write it. It's a, it's a nice gesture, and it goes on file somewhere at the United Nations in some drawer. Um, but uh, uh, we all do it today, so much so that we ex- seem to accept the idea that new government, new, const- new written constitution. But um, a lot of people objected to the idea of having a, a, a written constitution. They said, even if the constitution is, is, is well written and well devised, even if the laws are about as good as that you could make, it's never going to be adequate to the task. There's always going to be periods where you have to set the constitution aside or look at things in a different way, and you can't follow the law all the time. So people said, for reasons of state that was used, we shouldn't have a written constitution because we're only going to violate it at certain points which, of course, is a theme in American history. Have we violated our Constitution at certain points, or have we found ways within the Constitution to do what we want to do? And it's led also to this great conundrum that people have had. Can a Constitution have an exception to itself, recognizing that after you've written it with all the great scholars and people from your law schools, um, um, your law school here? Yes. People from Notre Dame Law School, I'll pick the best. Uh, after after you've, uh, you've written the Constitution and, and, and put it into effect, it, it can't serve all circumstances. So within the Constitution, people have experimented with the idea of having a provision which allows for the suspension of the Constitution. So all the laws are perfect except when they can't be used. Then we suspend the Constitution for a certain period of time, and then we come back to the Constitution. That's the way to try and solve this problem. So, so it's an imperfect uh, document, but, you know, you, you can revere things that aren't perfect. Uh, I, I revere, uh, you know, people revere um, their teachers. I, I used to revere a few teachers, um, venerate them. That doesn't mean that everything they say is perfect. Every so often they make a mistake now and then. Um, and in all, many ways, we've, we don't follow this idea of veneration to, to its end or limits. But doesn't veneration inhibit our ability to really understand the imperfectness of the document? It seems to be that it puts it on this pedestal that at no point can we come up with a better idea to actually closer achieve that actual end. I, I'm, I understand that you can venerate things that aren't perfect, mm-hmm. but the veneration obscures our ability to understand their flaws, doesn't it? Yeah, it could well be, but you know, nothing's ever perfect in, the, in, in, in time, and then the situation becomes better. Do we live best in a situation where people ha- don't venerate at all, and their whole mindset is shaped by the absence of veneration? Uh, is that a better political situation in which to live than, uh, um, than one in which we do venerate? And uh, nothing's going to last forever. Uh, for as long as this lasts, as long as this republic lasts, et cetera, I, I say it's better to begin with a, 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 a disposition to venerate the Constitution. If it's going to need to be changed at some point, for whatever reason, I mean change not just on a, a little hook, or, but fundamentally change, if it's going to be, that will become evident to some. I don't think they'll need 
uh, a lecture like this to dissuade them one way or another. I want to push Andrew's point a little bit uh, in a specific context. So, uh, five paper. Madison talks about veneration in Federalist 49. Five papers later, Federalist 54 is when he uh, addresses the three-fifths clause uh, and the, the issue of slavery. And he, he won't even defend that part of the Constitution in his own name, implicitly recognizing the injustice uh, of constitutional aspects dealing with slavery. So why? We know Madison thought slavery was unjust, contrary to the principles of the regime, that the Constitution had safeguards for slavery. And that why call for veneration uh, when the document, the original document, has something that's so fundamentally unjust? How, how do we square 59 and, uh, 49 and 54? Yeah. Well, um, first of all, look at the circumstances under which um, the Constitution was founded. And here's the choice. The founders, uh, those who wrote the Constitution, there was no national army. They didn't control the national army. They had this choice. They could form a constitution without the southern states, let's say three of them at least, but maybe four, Virginia as well, um, and, and therefore have a constitution that uh, proceeded without slavery. Or if they wanted to include everyone, they, they had to make choice. They, they, they couldn't compel. So. Uh, that's a fundamental circumstance of the American Constitution. It was unlike Lycurgus's founding of, of Sparta, where he armed troops that he used sometimes. It didn't exist. It wasn't possible. So they uh, acted under less than, uh, less than ideal circumstances, just, just the way that it was. So uh, um, that, that, I think, explains why we had this, uh, this idea of the three-fifths clause, which, by the way, if you actually look at it, the three-fifths clause, given that you're going to have slavery, isn't such a bad thing. It's used today in a demagogic way, about three-fifths of a person. That's not exactly right. It was uh, the South that wanted, really, each slave to be counted as one, not as three-fifths. That would give them the maximum amount of representation in the House of Representatives. So that's what they were after. But it's become twisted. All right, that's, our, that's the way we look at it in modern history, but I'll point that out. So that, that I would say, is the, the key thing. And um, everyone, um, I suppose, reading the Constitution, um, who, who took the stand eventually, whenever it came up, eliminating slavery, which I suppose the founders thought was going to happen on its own. Maybe they didn't quite have that right, but thought it was going to happen on its own, or many of them did. Um, uh, they have to look at it a different way. Sean, can we go to Patrick, and then we'll go to Robert, and then Jack Ferguson at the back. Thank you for speaking. My name is Patrick Ameny. I'm a political science undergraduate student. And I'm not sure your response there is internally consistent. Because when, if we're supposed to venerate the Constitution, we're supposed to say, well, Madison was this, this, epitome of a founder in a time that was nonpartisan and they were all philosophizing and imagine if we had Nancy Pelosi revising our constitution, we put all of the contemporary context in scare quotes. But then every time we see a flaw in the original constitution, we say, oh, well, that's just a, that's just a, a contingent fact of the historical process and that's why it's that way. I'm not sure how we can be asked to venerate something and at the same time treat its worst parts as contingent on historical processes. What are its worst parts? I mean, we, we have to get down to specifics. I suppose you could raise these issues in theory, but um, 
give me a for instance, and then we can begin to talk about it. I know that, for example, uh, that past attempts that I can think of to change the Constitution, I don't think were very good ideas. I can't prove it. I do know that two political scientists right in the last year of the Obama administration wrote this book called Relic, R-E-L-I-C, famous political scientists. I won't mention their names, one from the University of Chicago and one from Stanford. Relic, what's the relic? Was the Constitution. We really should get rid of the, the Constitution as it is and change it so that a heck of a lot more power goes to the president. Uh, I think this was probably written under the understanding that Hillary Clinton would become president and that most of the people in their audiences would think this was a great idea to give more power to the president. That was the position, I think, of uh, the Democratic Party in 2016. Um, after the election, um, when uh, the Democrats change, and this is nothing against the Democrats, the Republicans are changing, obviously, as well. They shift to you on all grounds, too. But after the election, uh, I haven't seen the book around in the bookstores very much, <laughs> or even on Amazon.com. So when I look at past instances of changing the Constitution, I personally don't find that many that are, uh, that, that are uh, appealing. But if you, if you have something you want to bring up, we, we can discuss and see whether there's something on both sides. And of course, we have some ways that we, we can change the Constitution within the law. There's some ways uh, maybe you think that's, that's difficult or impossible. But at, at what point would you say it's worthwhile to break the chain of seeming legality and throw us back into a, a state of nature. You'd have to make a, it seems to me, a pretty compelling case. And this is part of the reason for, 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 for revering. Um, you know, you can revere, revere normally means that you, you take something on, it, by, by on itself, that you, you, you go with it. It doesn't necessarily mean that. There can be people who can revere rationally, that is, understand why they revere with all its limitations. But let's say those are the two types of, uh, of revering that uh, exist. So you, you'd have to, to, to show me that we're in a better situation um, when, when we don't have this reverence in the nation at large. And we encourage, I think, uh, uh, um, rewriting the Constitution or rechanging it. What would our society look like then? And what would we be, what would we be better off? That's something that has to be d d debated in full. And um, so that, that gets to your question. But if, if you think it should be changed, uh, you know, give me a for instance and tell me how you change it and how important it is. And then, then we could discuss at least that in, in more concrete terms. I certainly wasn't advocating any particular change to the Constitution, simply a, uh, yeah. a shift of where we attach our veneration. Yeah, I, I can see that it would be possible. And I, I, I can see that nothing lasts forever in politics, even the United States. I, I hate to say that, but we're, um, here we are. Uh, look, for all the course of history, I don't see anything that's endured forever. Maybe we'll be the exception and we'll endure forever, but probably at some point, um, probably not in the next 12 years, but uh, maybe at some point this will happen here as well. But for, for as long as it lasts, this seems to be the best, it seems to be a reasonable political solution. Um, it requires a little bit of mental gymnastics to get there. It's not the same idea as founding itself. Founding itself opens up the idea, as the founders had to, to change, revolution, and shift. And then all of a sudden, we see them um, moving towards the idea of no, pulling away from that and saying, you know, it's a good idea. Of course, there's, you can still change the Constitution. There have been amendments and whatnot, so it's, it's not foreclosed. And, uh, but, but the idea of starting all over again is not something that uh, Hamilton, rather Madison, encourages. Just the opposite.
So that requires a little bit of, of thinking. I think it goes down to the idea that the activity of founding is different in kind than the activity of the thing that you establish. There, there are two, two different modes and orders inside of uh, our political life. And once you understand that, you can see that this paradox, I think, is probably going to be inevitable. Thank you. Let's see, we've, I saw two more hands. Let's have you both ask your questions now, and then we'll uh, conclude after that. So Robert, ask your questions, and then Jack will have you ask. Thanks, Professor Caesar. I'm a PhD student here at Notre Dame. Um, my question is this. You, you rightly noted the, some of the classical influence on Madison, especially in terms of, of founding, while still noting kind of some of the Lockean influence as well. Um, my question is this. In, in those, the ancient or, or classical foundings, there was always this, this combination of um, the founding of the state with some form of, of religious devotion or worship, right, that, that brought veneration to the, to the new regime. Um, Madison and his, and his place in time as, as a liberal thinker, that wasn't an option, right? This kind of um, disconnect with religion. And so I wanted your thoughts on, on how, how do you see Madison navigating that? Because even though veneration or, or, or respect, that these aren't necessarily religious concepts. I just looked up Merriam-Webster, and the second one relates to honor and, and of icons, right? So it, it does have a religious undertone or connotation or, or grounding, because there's, there's the kind of paradox that if, if the veneration doesn't have this kind of veil over it, that we're then thinking critically about the founding and therefore not venerating it in a way that lasts, helps the regime endure, right? So your, your thoughts on either what Madison thinks or what you think of what Madison did. You'll remember. Uh, hi, I'm Jack Ferguson. Uh, I'm a senior here, and I'm writing my thesis, uh, my senior thesis, uh, on Alexander Hamilton this year. Um, and Hamilton and Madison were these two great collaborators in the effort to constitute a new government um, with the Federalist Papers, um, but then they were such opponents in the first administration and thereafter of the new government. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on what were the you know, sources behind the unification of venerating the Constitution in the Federalist and then opposition in its uh, practical administration later on. Okay, well, the first question is very good. I, I agree with your last comment. I think it's very astute that um, veneration and reverence, as we use the terms, aren't necessarily, are not necessarily religious. And if you, let's say, read Ly uh, Lincoln's Lyceum Address and, and Federalist 49, but take the Lyceum Address, it's not necessary to see that term in a religious sense um, and, and, and probably isn't directly used in a, in a religious sense. So I believe you can revere without religion. On the other hand, there's no doubt to what you're saying. I wouldn't use the word piety, that might be too strong, but I, 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 there's no doubt that one spills over a little bit to the other. And it welcomes the kind of uh, argument that Jefferson made and that Herbert Crowley, a progressive later, made, making fun of reverence for the Constitution as if it were uh, uh, re religious in, in, in origin and uh, that it came from the same spirit. So um, I think that probably those who use the term reverence um, hope to gain something from this little ambiguity, but it's not absolutely necessary. As for the uh, Madison and, and the liberal constitution, I think it, it uh, I, I say this, 
probably show. If you look in the course of American history, I think the, the, the year, a couple years before and the year following the uh, Constitution, are probably the period in which, I won't say religious was at its lowest ebb in American history, it wasn't. But the invoking of religion in politics was at a very low ebb in American politics. Go back and, from the sources I've read and see how many people are, are saying that you have to accept the Constitution because God wants us to. Th those arguments were used in all other times, many other times in American history. The Revolution was supported on this basis. It was uh, important. The 1820s divine uh, mission was part of Manifest Destiny all the way through the uh, Religion was highly used, and I don't find it used much during the constitutional period. And that was probably, I guess, satisfactory to, to Madison to keep keep the, 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 uh, the, the, the two separate. So um, I think it's an accident in American history that this was the case that it could be done in this way. Um, so uh, I think that that gets at what you're saying. I, uh, there's, there, there's something that, in what you're saying that these terms can be used in that way, and for some were used in that way, but not so much, I guess, at the time of the, of the passing of the Constitution. Then the, the, uh, that's a kind of half answer, not a, not a full answer. Um, Madison and, and Hamilton, yeah, um, they, they wrote together the, the Federalist Papers. Hamilton was the one who organized it, but Madison was in New York, and, and he came along. Many people say he wrote the better papers, but fewer. Um, I'm not sure if that's true, but Hamilton wrote, wrote the larger part, so he's the chief author of the Federalist Papers. But Madison gets a lot of the press. What, what, what led to their split? I, I think it's complicated, but here, here I think is, in a, in a word, is I think Hamilton's reasoning. His idea, in general, is to show from the very start the outer limits of federal authority and, and to press those limits to the end thinking that you should set the precedents for their use right at the beginning so that there's never any doubt in the future. I think that was his own, uh, uh, one thing, uh, to make a point of that. And then, of course, the specific things that he wanted, which was protection for infant industries as one thing, more manufacturing, another, taking care of a, a, a national bank and becoming a national power. Those were the specific ones, but that's the general one. I think, um, I'd say, Madison, when he saw what the direction in which this was going grew frightened at uh, how, how extensive federalist uh, national government could be. And it went further than I think he imagined, or, or uh, this is my view of it without being a great expert, and um, uh, thought it went beyond perhaps what the, the, the limits of the legal limits of the Constitution, maybe it was an iffy situation, but went beyond them, and that it was time to, to, um, to, to put a stop to this, which he feared could even go further. And so, um, you could say he was consistent in his thought in these two periods. He never imagined how far Hamilton would go. That's one possible explanation. Before we thank uh, Professor Caesar, just a few thank yous and announcements. Uh, the announcements, a week from uh, tomorrow, so a week from Friday, we have the Archbishop of Philadelphia, Charles Chaput, will be giving a, um, a major address, as you might know. He just turned 75 and so has submitted his resignation papers to Rome. So he'll be speaking in this room, 1 o'clock on Friday uh, the 11th. Uh, the title of his talk is Things Worth Dying For. Um, uh, two weeks from today, a very promising young scholar um, 
who will be speaking on uh, reconstruction and Southern constitution, constitutionalism, uh, forest neighbors. Uh, award, he just published an award-winning book, so that's two weeks uh, from today, uh, right here at 1230. And uh, then some thank yous. I have a wonderful team to Soren Hansen, to Jen Smith, and then our friends at the Jack Miller Center. Thank you. And thank you to Professor Caesar. Thank you. <laughs> neighbors is the guy from Alaska, right?